please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 on page 953. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one now take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. As we continue on in the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, uh, we see in the passage that Esther Grace just read for us that he's, he's getting back on track with his sort of main thought. Uh, if you remember back to the beginning of the letter, Paul tells the church about a report that he received uh, regarding quarreling and divisions that had risen up in the congregation. So back in chapter 1, uh, verse 10, he says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that's the Apostle Peter, or I follow Christ. And, and so in response to that, through the rest of chapter 1 and then chapter 2, Paul is reminding the Corinthians of the message of the cross. This idea that the, the Son of God took on flesh and died on the cross in weakness and shame as a sacrifice and a substitute for anyone who would put their trust in him. Uh, Jesus rose from the dead in glory and power and victory over sin and death, and he offers forgiveness and salvation and eternal life to everyone who will come to him in humble faith, trusting not in their own goodness but in his death for them. That message, that message of the cross, Paul says, seems weak and foolish to the world. It just doesn't make sense. It, it didn't make sense then, and it doesn't make sense now. The message of the cross is the message that we're not good enough, that we're not the solution to our problem, but actually the cause of it. It's the message that it's not the elite and the clever and the powerful and the rich who are ultimately in with God, but it's the humble, the repentant, and the contrite who, who receive his grace and mercy. At last week in chapter 2, we saw that this foolish, weak message can only be embraced, can only be accepted by someone uh, if, if the Holy Spirit enables them to do it. So on our own, as natural human beings, the way that we're all born, this message of the cross is, is foolishness. Uh, Paul told us in chapter 2 that only the Spirit of God can give us eyes to see and minds to to believe, and hearts that love this gospel message. And so when we left off last week, we saw Paul had broken the world down, as it were, essentially into two groups. You have natural people. You have what he calls in chapter 3, merely human people, right? Those for whom this spiritual message of God's wisdom is, is simply something that cannot be believed. And you have spiritual people, spirit people, those who have received the, the gift of God's Holy Spirit and are able to appreciate the wisdom and power of the cross. As Paul said at the end of chapter 2, we, that is, those of us who have the Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. We're able to understand things in the way that, that God understands them because God is present with us by his Holy Spirit. Here at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul's going to begin to unpack the importance of what he says in chapter 2 about the Spirit. And he's going to bring it to bear, particularly on those divisions that he's heard about in the church at Corinth. And so as we look at this chapter, let's, let's see three things. First, let's see the Corinthians' behavior. Second, we're going to see the Corinthians' gardener. And then finally, the Corinthians' construction materials. Okay, so as we work our way through the passage, we'll see it in three steps. Let's start with the Corinthians' behavior. Paul accuses them of merely human behavior here. Look in verses 1 to 4. It says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready. You're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? And behaving only in a human way? 
For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So there in verse 1, Paul flashes back to his earlier interactions with them. He might be referring to the couple of years that he spent in Corinth uh, planting the church there. He might be talking about the the letter that he had written to them, uh, addressing some of the issues in the church earlier. Uh, But he says that even though they're spiritual people, right, even though they're people indwelt by God's spirit, as he's established in chapter 2, he had to address them as if they weren't, right? Even though they had been brought to maturity, because of their faith in Christ, as Paul puts it in chapter 2, verse 5, even though they were mature and spirit-filled, he says they were acting like infants. I think this language is designed to hit the Corinthians right where it would hurt. It seems like from Paul's response to their letter all throughout uh, 1 Corinthians, remember they had written a letter to him and he had responded, it seems like all throughout 1 Corinthians, the church there thought of themselves as very spiritual, more spiritual than Paul, in fact. They thought that through their special insights, their wisdom, their knowledge, they had, they had transcended the mere physical realm. They, they were spiritual people. Here Paul says, you're, you're like people of the flesh in verse 1. Right? They thought their wisdom made them so mature and sophisticated, uh, much more erudite than Paul himself. But here he says, you're acting like mere infants. You need to be fed with milk rather than more advanced spiritual food. Again, it seems that the Corinthians had complained to Paul or about Paul that his teaching was too simple, that it was too basic, that this message of the cross that he brought lacked the the wisdom and eloquent sophistication that they wanted to hear from their leaders. And so here Paul says, I fed you with the milk of the gospel, the message of the cross, it's milk, not in the sense that it's less than solid food, but, but rather it's, it's foundational. Uh, Paul says it's, it's milk, not in the sense that it's something you want to move on from, but that it's essential to, to spiritual life. They, they had not yet extracted all of the benefits from the milk, from the gospel message. And unless that message is the one that shapes them and forms them, then any other teachings about maybe more complex things that the Corinthians wanted to hear, they were simply going to be dangerous. The same way you wouldn't give an infant a stake. Think about any activity that you want to learn. Whether it's rock climbing or gymnastics or martial arts or kayaking or lifting weights or pitching a baseball, whatever it is, there are foundational concepts and skills that you have to have in place before you can move on and do anything more complicated. And it's dangerous and it's unwise to try and advance before you have the fundamentals in place. So you have to know how to throw a fastball with proper mechanics before you can learn how to throw a curveball. If you haven't mastered the forward roll, you're you're not ready to attempt a a double back salto tucked with a triple twist. Everyone knows you're going to hurt yourself, right? It's not that these more advanced maneuvers are better than the foundational ones. It's that they depend on them. Right? And so the Corinthians had not yet grasped the milk, the foundational message of the gospel. They, they hadn't wrestled with the implications and the importance of the message of the cross. They looked down on it as foolish and weak. And so they had no foundation that they could build more advanced ideas on. Right? Paul says, not only were you that way previously, before, he says there at the end of verse 2, they're still that way. He says, even now, you're not ready. 
right? This, this is amounts to shots fired, right? They're looking down on Paul. They saw his message and his ministry as foolish and immature, lacking in spiritual sophistication and wisdom. But here Paul says, you're the ones who need to grow up, right? They're the ones who are, according to verse 1, people of the flesh. And then two times in verse 3, of the flesh. They thought they were so spiritual. Paul says they're acting like they're fleshly. Right there in verse 4, he further explains what he means. He describes them as behaving like people in that they're behaving only in a human way. They're acting like people who, he says, are merely human. That is to say, for all of their boasting about their spiritual prowess, they were acting just like everyone else around them. Their, their behaviors were the ones you'd expect from people who don't have the Spirit of God. And the evidence for Paul's charge is there in verse 3. He says, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? You see, the seamless fabric of the church was in danger of being torn by division. We're not sure exactly what's going on, but it is clear that people were in some way lining up behind and identifying themselves with different leaders. There, these weren't doctrinal differences per se. We don't have any indication that there was, there was any difference between the teaching of Paul and the teaching of Apollos. Instead, it seems like it's a, a kind of cliquishness. A kind of, of kind of tribalism or hostility setting in. This is, this is personal. Paul mentions that these divisions, they, they weren't sort of high-minded theological disagreements. They were characterized by jealousy and strife that, that they somehow attached to their allegiance to Paul or Apollos. But for Paul, this is what you'd expect from people who are mere humans. He's not saying there's anything wrong with being a human. He's just saying... You can, kind of, you can get these kinds of results without the Holy Spirit. As Paul will write to the Galatian church, the Spirit produces peace and patience and love and kindness and joy. The Spirit, when he is present, produces unity and a deep, real, instinctive humility in God's people. And it seems that very little of that was in evidence here in Corinth. And so you have this, this strange tension. Paul is not saying that they're not spiritual people. He understands that they are in Christ and that they have the Holy Spirit. We saw last week the only way you can become a follower of Christ is through the Spirit's power. He knows that they have the Spirit. He knows they're spiritual. But what makes no sense is that they're acting like people who don't. They're, they're like millionaires going about in rags. They're, they're like strong men being restrained by paper handcuffs. Divisive Christians? Jealous and quarreling spirit people? It just doesn't make any sense. You, you sense Paul's outrage, his confusion, his disapproval here in these verses. And so friends, let's allow these spirit-inspired words of the Apostle Paul to take our measure. As we see in subsequent chapters, he's going to take the church to task for, for gross immorality, for lawsuits amongst believers, for drunkenness at the Lord's table, for pride and boasting of the worst kind. But when he wants to show them just how far off the beam they are, 
when he presents exhibit A for their unspiritual behavior, he points to their divisiveness, the, the jealousy, the quarreling spirit that lies behind it. And so how would you say the church in America is doing? Between the election, the pandemic, a response to racial unrest, I think we saw a disheartening eagerness to elevate secondary and even tertiary matters above the unity that we have in the, the message of the cross applied by the Spirit of God to his people. I think if we're honest, we saw a quarreling spirit set in or, or maybe bubble up as people seem to spend more time focusing and, and uh, accusing brothers and fault-finding than, than praying for and looking for evidence of grace in their brothers and sisters. Right, I think we saw jealousy take root as people were quick to identify with factions and become suspicious of fellow believers. I mean, I'm struck by the fact that at least the Corinthians were splitting up behind spiritual giants. Like, if you're going to divide the church, divide it over Paul and Peter. We were dividing the church over Trump and Biden. We split up over masks and no masks. Vaccines, no vaccines. Black lives matter versus all lives matter. I don't know if the Apostle Paul would laugh or cry. Right, and it's not just the church in America broadly, right? Let's not let ourselves off the hook. I think if we're honest, that spirit makes its way into our congregation as well. Right, I understand there's room for controversial topics. We as believers may have very legitimate disagreements about things that, that matter. But when those things become the only thing that we're willing to talk about, or, or when they corrode our love, and our care, and our respect, and even the delight that we have in one another, right? you, you can be sure when that's taking place in any church, we're acting like mere human beings. Again, that's something we can, we can achieve very easily without the power of the Holy Spirit. No, it's when all of the things that create quarrels and jealousy and strife out there, when all of those things find no purchase in our hearts, when they can gain no foothold in our gatherings, that's when we're acting like spiritual people. And I'm not saying this to scold you. I actually have seen quite a bit of, of patience and love and forbearance at work in our church family over the last 18 months. I think we've, we've drawn quite a bit on spirit-wrought maturity, and, and we should give thanks for God's work in our midst. But I also do think there are times when, when the shoe has fit, and maybe more than we'd like to admit. And so we ought to allow Paul's words here to have their intended effect of softening our hearts, refocusing our intentions, leading us to repentance, causing us to commit to loving one another and, and maintaining the unity of our church. And before we move on, let, just, let me stop and address one other thing about these verses. Paul's words here in, in verses 1 to 4 have, have been wrenched out of context and misapplied, I think, in my opinion, by a lot of well-meaning Christian traditions. And so I just want to address one interpretation of these verses that you may very well have heard that I think is particularly unhelpful, and that is uh, a teaching about carnal Christianity. So Paul calls these Christians in Corinth of the flesh, 
He calls them fleshly here in contrast to spiritual people uh, that they ought to be. And so some people have, have taken that to mean that there really are two kinds of Christians. There are mature Christians who walk by the Spirit of God, and there are carnal or, or fleshly Christians who don't live like they have the Spirit. And I understand why you would draw that conclusion from this passage. But, but where this sort of tradition goes wrong is, is making this idea of a fleshly or a carnal Christian a normal and permanent category. So that it includes anyone who's ever at any time professed faith in Christ, no matter how they live from that moment forward. So, for example, if someone seems to have accepted Jesus into his heart at a vacation Bible school when they were five, this, this understanding of this passage would say that person is a Christian. And even if they never act like a Christian their whole life, even if they never give Jesus a second thought, they never darken the door of a church, they never give any indication that the Spirit is at work in their life, well, that person is a carnal Christian. They're saved by Christ's blood. They're just missing out on some of the blessings here on earth. So someone once said to me, uh, they asked me, well, please, please pray for my friend. He's in jail uh, for stealing a lot of money from someone in his family. And, uh, and he's, he's also guilty of some, some pretty serious violence, and so he's been put in jail. So pray for him. I mean, he's a Christian. He accepted Jesus when he was a little kid. He doesn't really follow him anymore. I guess, I guess he's what you call a carnal Christian. So pray for him. It's like, I'll certainly pray for him. And I don't know the status of anyone's heart, but it sounds like from the description, this person isn't a Christian at all. Right? That's not the kind of person Paul is addressing in these verses when he talks to a fleshly or carnal believer. In fact, Paul's point seems to be the exact opposite, that, that a spirit person, a, a true Christian, should never act in those kinds of ways. And so here he's flummoxed. He's at a loss. He's desperate for the Corinthians to change. He's not, he's not creating a normal category of genuine Christian experience. Right, as, we see in, as we'll see in chapter 6, people who practice those kinds of things, he said, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, he's pointing out to the, the Corinthians just how inconsistent their behavior is with the work of the Spirit. Because he knows it can't keep going like this. If the Spirit is at work, they will repent, they will, they will change, they'll give evidence of the Spirit's uh, presence in their hearts. So we don't want to understand what Paul is doing here is to kind of create a normal category of sort of permanently disobedient Christian. Okay, so let's move along then and see our second point, which is the Corinthians gardener. Look there in verses 5 to 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. You can see what Paul is doing here. The Corinthians were dividing behind their favorite leader, and so the first thing Paul does is sort of knock out the props from under their arrogant boasting. He says, in essence, you all brag so much about belonging to Paul or Apollos, but they're nothing. Look there in verse 5. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Nothing. A servant. 
the, the word there is the, the Greek word diakonoi. It, it just means a common table waiter, right? Not, not, a, not a glamorous servant at all, just a, just a guy, a guy who's got a job, right? He's, he's taking the teeth out of their factious pride, right? You think you're so great. You're boasting so much about how you follow someone. That guy is just a table waiter, right? No one exalts a servant. What are you, what are you doing, Corinthians? Right? He says there that, that Paul and Apollos, they're not the ones who actually accomplished anything in the Corinthians' lives. They're, they're merely instruments that God used to bring them to faith. Paul uses a, a, a metaphor there from agriculture. He, Paul, planted the seeds of the gospel in their lives. Paul was the first one in on the ground. Right? In Acts chapter 18, we read about him going to Corinth and, and planting the seed of the gospel there. Uh, Apollos watered that seed. Uh, apparently, he came in later and, and began to teach after Paul. But, but Paul says neither one of us actually made anything grow. Right? If there's anything that a first century farmer understood, it's that they didn't control very much. You can plant a seed. You can water it. You can fertilize it. You can weed it. But from that point on, you are pretty much dependent. You're left hoping that it actually grows. You can't actually make anything grow. And it was the same way for Paul and Apollos. They each did the task that had been assigned. Paul planting the seed. Uh, Apollos coming in later and watering it with further teaching. Uh, as Paul says there in verse 10, he went in and laid the foundation. Someone else continued the building. Right? Each one of them is just simply doing their job. Uh, they are, as Paul says there in verse 7, not anything. Their particular tasks are not important in and of themselves. But there in verse 8, Paul says that they all work towards one goal. Paul's planting, Apollos is watering, and they have one end in mind, getting something to grow. And so the Corinthians' boasting was ridiculous. They were, they were exalting mere workmen. It's like they're looking out over the most spectacular botanical gardens in the world, and they're praising the man who delivered the fertilizer. Right, you've missed the picture. You're dividing yourself up. You're, you're splitting your allegiances over men who were unified in their larger purpose. And not only, not only are they exalting mere men, they're failing to properly exalt the one who actually deserved all the credit. Because there was someone who deserves credit and glory for all of this. And that is God. Because he did all the real work. In verse 5, God commissions Paul and Apollos to do their work. He makes the seeds of the gospel grow in the hearts of the Corinthians. And so he's the one who should get all the credit. He should get all the glory. He should be the one in whom they are boasting. Right? The Corinthians, their pride, their boasting, it showed that they had everything backwards. They had exalted men to the position that only God should have. The point, I think, of verses 5 to 9 is that the work of salvation... And the work of building the church ultimately belongs to God. Now, he is the gardener that has the power to make things grow. I think you see that very clearly in verse 9. He says, uh, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Paul didn't have access to Microsoft Word. So there was no way for him to put his sort of points of emphasis in bold or italics. But the way you did that in ancient Greek was to put the most important word at the beginning of a phrase or, or sentence. And that's what Paul does 
three times here in the Greek. If we were to sort of woodenly translate it into English, he says it like this, God's co-workers we are. I guess it's kind of Yoda theology here. God's field you are. God's temple you are. It's bold. It's italics. God's, God's, God's. Paul's prescription for their divisive boasting is a healthy dose of understanding that all of this belongs to God. All of it is his work, his responsibility, and he deserves all the glory. And so what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we shouldn't elevate any human beings to the point where we have allegiance to them above our allegiance to God. We ought to have deep respect and gratitude for anyone who serves the Lord with, with skill and integrity. We ought to be grateful for the gifts that God gives us in terms of godly leaders and faithful teachers. But in the end, they are just servants, tools in the hand of a master gardener. I think this also reminds us that the results of our work for the Lord is ultimately not in our hands. Remember there from verse 6, Paul and Apollos did the work but God made it grow. In the same way, any work that we do in our Christian lives is ultimately no more than planting, tilling, watering. Right? Some of you have, have poured countless hours into this church, working in hopes to see something grow, and, and you've done very well in doing so. But ultimately, brothers and sisters, any fruit that we see comes from God, not from us, not from our skill, not from our wisdom. Some of you have poured countless hours into sharing the gospel with your friends, your neighbors, your children, your extended family. If you see any fruit from that work, you must know that it's from God. That might sound a little depressing because I think we, we love the illusion of control, but in reality, it's quite freeing. You are responsible for the work, not the fruit. You're responsible to do your task to plant the seeds, to, to water it, to, to do as God has assigned to you. He's responsible for the growth. I remember once attending very early on when I was first pastor of this church, attending a, a church planting gathering with the local denomination, and the, the teacher taught off these verses, and he said, look, you have to understand, as you work, God's the one who gives the growth. And I thought, that's surprisingly helpful for this particular organization. And so I was encouraged by that and felt freedom. And then he said, and look, I think if you all did a better job managing your schedules, you'd see more baptisms. And I thought, did the guy who just said that talk to the guy who just said the other thing earlier, right? Because actually now I'm stressed out. Now I feel like I've got to do more and I have to do better if anything's ever going to grow, right? We're not meant to have that reaction. This passage is meant to encourage us that, that God will give growth. He will give fruit as he sees fit, as he deems necessary. He will, in fact, Paul says, reward us, in verse 8, according to our labor. Notice Paul doesn't say you're rewarded according to the results of your labor or the fruit of your labor. No, instead you'll be rewarded for your faithfulness in doing the task that the Lord has given to you. And so by all means, do the work that God's given you to do. Pour yourself into ministry to your, your neighbors, your kids, this church. Right? If, you're, if you're an elder or a deacon, a small group leader, or a children's ministry worker, if you're part of the local outreach team or, or a, simply a faithful member 
that's supporting this church through prayer and love and service and giving, be more concerned with being faithful and not so much whether you see any specific outward result. Right? If you don't understand that, you're going you're gonna to burn out. You're, you're going you're gonna to sort of smash your hammer on the anvil of futility. Right? But if you understand that God is the one who gives the growth, then, you, then you're free. Right? You're free to simply be faithful, to be prayerful, to ask the Lord to bear fruit through the work that you're doing. And that brings us to our third and final thing to see this morning. That is the, the construction materials, the Corinthians construction materials. Look there in verses 9 to 15. Paul says, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has done, uh, or that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So Paul abruptly switches his imagery from that of agriculture uh, to that of construction and architecture. In verse 9, he tells them that they are, in fact, God's building. So in verse 6, Paul's a farmer. In verse 10, he says that by God's grace, he laid a foundation as a master builder. Uh, the word that Paul uses there in Greek is uh, a wise builder, right, which is is significant, right? Because the, the Corinthians uh, thought that they were so wise. But Paul says, I've, I've built this foundation using the wisdom of God, right? The cross of Christ is, in fact, our foundation. And he's aware that others, like Apollos and the others in the Corinthian church, they've continued building on that foundation that he laid, right? So Paul's few years of ministry in Corinth were, were there establishing a church, laying a foundation, beginning a building, and now other people are, are adding to it and building onto it. And Paul, so Paul gives them some really stern instructions about how they should go about the work. He tells them there's only one foundation on which a church can be built, and that is Jesus Christ. Right? A church can be built on nothing except the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was true then, and it was true now. That means everything that we do as a church has to be filtered through the lens of the gospel. Right? It has to be self-consciously standing on the foundation of the gospel. Right? Not, the, not a foundation of pragmatism, not a foundation of church growth, but the gospel. If we as a church want to do anything, if we want to build a new building here in the North Lawn, it's because we think it will help us spread and grow that message of the cross. If we evaluate our lives, if we evaluate our faithfulness as a church, we have to do it based on God's calculus, not ours. Have we been faithful? Have we lived out the gospel? Have we proclaimed the cross of Christ? <coughs> 
It means we unswervingly adhere to the Bible that, that reveals to us Christ as our guide and truth. Right? That's how we build on the foundation of Christ. And, the, and any kind of building that we do has to be consistent with the foundation that we have. I think that's what Paul's assuming in his transition there between verse 10 and 11. Because Christ is the foundation, Paul says, each one should be careful how he builds. But I think, I think this is the takeaway from this section for us. Right? This is your command. This is your imperative. Be careful to build in a way that makes sense, that, that makes sense in light of the gospel. Right? In light of the foundation of our church, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says there's, there are proper ways to build and there are improper ways to build. You see there in verses 13 to 17, Paul warns that everyone's work, right, all, all of your efforts in building up the church will face judgment. Look there, particularly in verse 13. He says, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. I think we read these verses sometimes and we, we immediately apply them to ourselves as individuals. Right? And we think, okay, how am I building my life? But Paul's talking about the church here, first and foremost. Uh, the, the yous here are plural. Right? He, he's saying you are God's building, you all. Right? And so when he's talking about our work, when he's talking about our building, he's talking about the way we're, we're investing our lives in seeing the church built. Uh, for us particularly, Sterling Park Baptist Church, this congregation. And Paul says there's a day coming when the Lord Jesus returns and everything will be judged. Everything will be evaluated. And that day, Paul says, will be like fire that burns up everything that is worthless all the wood, the hay, the straw, but it reveals the, the preciousness and the beauty and the enduring quality of, of all that's built properly using precious stones and gold and silver. In context, Paul probably, when he talks about wood, hay, and straw, is, is pointing the, to the Corinthians who were exalting their wisdom, their knowledge, their special, eloquent words. Right, because those things were ultimately devoid of the power of the cross, they're not going to survive. These things don't have the power of God. They're not the wisdom of God. They're not attended by the Spirit of God, and so they're not going to last. They're, they're, they're of those things that are destined to pass away. It's merely human wisdom. It's all going to be exposed, Paul says, as foolish and empty and useless. In our day... I think churches are tempted to build themselves on pragmatism, on pop psychology, on the latest business principles, on whatever it is that seems to work, to attract people, to draw people, to make them feel good, and to fill up seats. But friends, there's a coming day when anything that's not built on the foundation of Christ, that isn't built with appropriate construction materials, it's going to be burned up. It's going to be revealed as ultimately worthless. And so each one of us should pay attention to how we are building the church. Because as Paul says there in verses 16 to 17, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you, that's you plural, you church, 
are that temple. We're going to unpack this imagery at greater length, Lord willing, in chapter 6. But for now, notice that Paul is telling the church that they together form God's temple. When they are gathered together for worship, they are the temple of God. They are the place where God is specially present. When we build, that's what we're building, a temple, a place, a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. Corinth is a city full of temples. But in this city full of temples, there is only one place where you can truly find the presence of the real God who exists. That's in the church in Corinth. And brothers and sisters, in Sterling Park in in Loudoun County, there are a million places to worship. There are temples everywhere. From the Baha'i Temple to the Adams Center to to the baseball fields of Sterling Park, people are out worshiping. But the place where God is actually present with his people is here. And every other congregation where the gospel of the Lord Jesus is believed. And that means we must be very careful. We can't squander that privilege. We can't can't besmirch that witness through bickering and infighting and quarreling and jealousy. Paul says something this sacred, this important, this holy, it must be built with the utmost respect and care. It deserves all of your attention. Paul even says God takes it very personally when someone profanes or abuses or mistreats his temple. So brothers and sisters, we must be careful how we build. Based on how we build, we will suffer loss or will be rewarded, as we see there in verses 14 to 15. Uh, That word in in verse 14 for being rewarded, it's the same as that Paul uses in verse 8 where he talks about receiving a wage for the work he's done. Right? So you're either on the last day when, when all is revealed and judgment comes like fire and reveals what's truly been built in a, in a way that makes sense, that's appropriate of the fact that our foundation is Christ and our identity is the temple of God. When that, that sort of fire of judgment comes and ultimately reveals, either you will be rewarded for your labor or Paul says you will suffer loss. Now that might be a bit confusing. Because I thought we were saved by grace and not by our works. So how is it that we're going to be rewarded according to our deeds? Well, honestly, we don't have the answer to every question we might conceivably have about what Paul's saying here. But we always interpret difficult passages of Scripture in in light of ones that are clearer. And so we know that we're saved completely apart from our good deeds and our works. Because we are sinners, the only thing that we have ever earned from God is his wrath. Uh, Nothing we can do could ever earn our salvation uh, from God. But it does seem that Paul is telling us here that on the day of judgment, everything will be revealed, and God in his grace will reward and pay his servants for their good building. We don't know exactly what this reward will be. Some people speculate that it will be the the satisfaction of, of seeing your work endure this test of fire. Something, something, it's something like in Matthew chapter 25, verse 21, where the reward is hearing Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Or just in the next chapter of 1 Corinthians, we read that the faithful servant receives commendation from God. Conversely, in verse 15, those who have built poorly will suffer loss. 
Clearly, this isn't a loss of their salvation. That would contradict everything we know about salvation by grace alone. Paul explicitly says in verse 15, this person will be saved. But perhaps the loss is, is the pain of seeing their life's work come to, to very little. Or perhaps it's just the, the disappointment of knowing that you built poorly. We should always have in mind that our work here on earth, the way that we teach, the way that we build, the way that we serve, the way that we love, the way that we speak, the way that we give, the way that we invest, all of it is subject to judgment. All of it will be revealed for what it is on the day of the Lord. Friends, I think those are sobering words. These aren't ideas we should throw about lightly or carelessly. Paul wants us to consider carefully how we're building the church. He's wanting us to, to, to think twice before we do anything that would ever harm the temple of God. And he's not writing here just to leaders. He's writing to the whole church. Everyone has a task that the Lord has given them. You're either building well by caring for your brothers and sisters, living out the gospel, proclaiming it in words, or you're building poorly. And so, brothers and sisters, I'd encourage you, spend time this week. Consider what it is you're building. Consider how much or how little you're building. Consider whether what you're building will survive God's evaluation on the last day. Well, as we conclude, as we approach the Lord's table together, I think we see at the very end of this passage that, that Paul wants to sort of wrap up this idea by reminding the church of some of the things he's already said. If you look at verses 18 to 23, they act as a sort of echo uh, back to what Paul said earlier. He returns to this idea of human wisdom about which the Corinthians had been boasting so much. Uh, they, were, they were deceived, thinking they were wise in this age Right, their, their beloved wisdom, their eloquent speech, their knowledge that made them so proud. Paul goes back to chapter 1 where he, he reminds them that actually that thing that you love so much, God is passionately committed to destroying it. So you see there in uh, verse 18, uh, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Verse 20, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Right? So Paul's just reminding them, hey, look, before you go committing your life to this worldly wisdom, just remember that God wants to destroy it. Paul's remedy for their arrogant boasting was to remind them that in Christ, they actually already had every spiritual blessing they could ever desire. Everything that they wanted to be true of them because of their wisdom Paul says, it's actually already true of you in Christ. Look there in verses 21 to 23. He says, because you're in Christ, everything that Christ has is yours. Christ is of God, and so by extension, everything of God is yours. God has given you access to everything. He hasn't withheld anything. So Paul says in verse 21, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, again, that's the Apostle Peter, right? these men you're boasting in, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. Paul says, all are yours. 
It's as if Paul's saying you're not even boasting about the right things. All are yours. You are Christ's, and Christ is God's. You're bragging about men. If you want to brag, brag about the riches you have in Christ. You are the heir to the greatest fortune in the world. I wonder if Paul's not trying to reassure them here. I wonder if Paul wouldn't have us come to the Lord's table freshly reassured. You know how most people who boast are, are basically insecure. It's almost like Paul's reassuring them, look, you don't have to boast in Paul or Apollos or Cephas. You don't need to brag about your wisdom in order to feel good about yourself. It's actually okay that you're not much in the world's eyes. It's all right that your faith makes you seem foolish to the people around you. It's okay because you have everything in Christ. You have life, eternal life. You have forgiveness. You have a reconciled relationship with God. You have adoption into his family. You have the sure hope of eternal life. You have the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you to give you spiritual wisdom. You have everything when you have Christ. And brothers and sisters, that's what we come to celebrate at the Lord's table. Everything that we long for, everything that that tempts us to divisiveness and quarreling and jealousy, everything that tempts us to pride and boasting, everything that might tempt us to build poorly or to build somewhere else, we actually already have it in Christ. In him we are wise. In him we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In him we are forgiven and made righteous and vindicated before the world. In him we've been given work to do. We can pour out our lives in the work of building the church, knowing that God gives growth and he rewards richly. In him we have hope that our work will be found faithful on the last day. So let's respond in faith to all that we have by coming now to the Lord's table. Let's pray together. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we delight in your salvation, that you've given us all things when you gave us the Lord Jesus Christ, that you've made us a dwelling place of your spirit. Oh God, we, we've deserved none of that. We, we pray that you would help us to live in light of the, the words that we've considered this morning. We pray that you would help each one of us by your spirit to be very careful how we build. We pray that you would help us uh, to boast and to glory only in the riches that we have in Christ. And we pray that that truth, that identity as your temple, we pray that those riches that we have, we pray that they would create unity in our church and that through that Christ would get much glory. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.